Hello, internet friends, and welcome to another episode of Under Time. I'm Richard Lutz, and it is my goal to talk about some of the biggest decisions that go into TV shows, movies, and commercials. On this episode of Render Time, it, yes, I know it, it has been a moment, but on this episode, we got a legend in the film industry, specifically within sound. Today, we are talking with Vicki Sampson. Vicki is a sound mixer, and she's worked on some of the biggest films in the world. I'm currently looking at her IMDb page, and she's worked on Donnie Darko, The Fighter, Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, Speed. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. So it was truly a privilege and an honor to sit down and talk with her and hear her thoughts on how young filmmakers can make their mark on the industry. It's hard getting into this business. It's really, really hard, I would know from firsthand experience, but it was refreshing to hear from a veteran of the business who is very successful on how we are capable of doing this thing. This episode's a little different. This episode went really, really long, so I'm gonna break it up into two episodes for you. You'll hear the first half this week and the second half next week. So enough of me talking, enough of me just rambling. Let's get into the episode with Vicki Sampson. Why don't you begin by just introducing yourself? I'm Vicki Sampson, and I've been a sound editor for many, 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 many years on some really cool projects that I got to work on with my mom, who was Kay Rose, the first woman sound editor to win an Oscar. And I should get the Oscar out. I saw it. Okay. I saw it at the. Uh, oh right, you saw L- it at the thing. The LAPPG. But you know, thing. it's an inspiration to have in front no, of us. No, it's. Yeah. I've, I've, I've never seen an Oscar until that moment, and it's like, as a young filmmaker and editor, like that is the ultimate prize in every filmmaker's head. Is yeah. just like, to, be at the Kodak Theater holding that piece of hardware. I mean, that's to see one is like. It truly is a swift kick in the butt. So, and <laughs> I want to begin by saying, by thanking you to do this because I know for me and my audience, I hope that they find it to be really inspirational in terms of how they can make their careers and dreams come true. So, I want to start off by saying thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. So, why don't you begin by <laughs> telling? I'm just, in many ways, I just want to shut up and not talk because it's just your wealth of knowledge is exceeds anything I've ever experienced before in terms of sound. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got into the business? Um, well, I got into the business. Uh, some people think I got in th- through my mom's influence, but really it was uh, a very basic need because when I was little, my parents got divorced um, and my dad was a film editor and a B-movie director. He directed Target Earth. You can look it up. It's a, kind of a B-movie cult classic. And um, when they got divorced, you know, my mom was working and she was working on the Big Valley and the Rifleman TV series. And she was gone all day working as we do in post-production. We don't get to see our families as much as we want to. So um, my main desire when I got to be about 16, 17, and I was hanging out at the studios and watching her work and listening to, and I love movies and I love books and stories and I was always writing stories and I always thought I would be a a writer director. That was my goal. And uh, I kind of didn't want to even go into sound because I could see how, what a hard life it was. You know, my mom would come home and of course on film, you know, you get really, really dirty with your hands because you're running film through a machine and it you just get... So she would come home and I'd see her hands were like black, you know? And she'd go to the, the restroom right off the bat and wash her hands. And I thought, gosh, what does she do that her hands get so dirty, you know? <laughs> and then, then I realized, oh, it's all film. Because when I started working them, my hands got real dirty too. We don't have that problem anymore with digital, you know, digital editing. But um, so I... Uh, I actually worked in the back of Verna Fields' house. Now, for those of you cinephiles who know who Verna Fields was, she was the film editor on Jaws, who became very close with Spielberg and Lucas, and she was my mom's best friend, and later became the head of post-production at uh, Universal Studios, and there's a building dedicated to her, Verna Fields. So 
Um, my mom and Verna and another famous uh, a music editor named George Brand were hired to do this film for Mattel. Mattel's son, Ken, his real name is Ken because he has a sister named Barbie. <laughs> um, and it was his first time doing a feature and they, they hired, you know, these big time, you know, film editor, sound editor, music editor, mixer to do this very terrible film. Anyway, so I kind of was the apprentice on the film and we worked in the back of Vernafield's house behind her pool. She had a little like pool cabana and she had her dog Bubbles, who was this big hairy German shepherd that would lay across the moviola pedals and get, you know, dog hair all over the tracks. And, and this is how we, we worked. And I just was fascinated by the whole process. And of course, my mom loved movies and always wanted to be a producer and you know, just love stories and storytelling and would get lost in the movies. So my love of movies came from her, really. That's fascinating because it's like, for a lot of filmmakers, they're like, they want to do a specific thing in the business. And they're like, oh, I want to direct, I want to edit, I want to act. But they, they then get pulled a separate direction. I was talking with a friend who's over at Technicolor and she's a, she does some producing, associate producing there and she wanted to direct and now she's in the whole color game. What drew you to working in sound specifically outside of your influence of just your mom? What, uh, what was that thing that drew you to editing sound? Well, um, let's see. What drew me to editing sound? Well, I mean, it really was motivated by being able to work with my mom because she was very well respected in the business. She worked with great directors, Mark Rydell, Alan Pakula, Martin Scorsese, um, you know, and I wanted to be close to that. And the way to do it was to work with her. And then as, as I got along and I understood the business a little more, um, I got good at it. As I do with most things I attempt to do, I get good at it. And then I started, you know, wanting to do it more. Plus the money was really good. I mean, here I was like 21 um, and I was making more money a week than most of my friends who had graduated from college. So that, that was a big motivating factor actually, because, um, and I was working on quality projects, you know. I mean, my first film right off the bat was uh, Cinderella Liberty, which was a Mark Rydell film. Um, with Jimmy Kahn and uh, Marsha Mason and I was the apprentice editor on that film and I wasn't even hired by my mom that was the picture editor Don Cameron who later became the president of the Motion Picture Editors Guild and he he hired me because we didn't want things to look like nepotism because my mom didn't believe in that actually she yeah. said if you want to do this you do it you know and you get good at it and then you'll be you know wanted to for your own on your own sake absolutely and I think uh I'm always fascinated to learn about how people break into this business because I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends are, it's a tough grind. It's a it really is. tough grind to find those opportunities and get established. Well, and you know, and I've taught so many classes. I taught at UCLA, I taught at Video Symphony, and I could see right away who was hungry to do this, you know, because a lot of kids come out of you know they go to school like their parents pay for them to go to films you know or film school classes or whatever you want to call it and but they're not hungry you know they don't want to they don't want to pay the dues they think if they learn the computer and the machine and pro tools that suddenly they're editors and you know we've had a long history of being you come up through the ranks you become an apprentice just like the trades you know like if your father was a cobbler you became a cobbler you know probably because it was available to you but you have to come up through the ranks so we used to you know have to be an apprentice for five years then you were an assistant editor for a few years then maybe you were an entry-level like foley editor foley for some reason has become the entry-level position but I was noticing that the kids coming at, you know, through Video Symphony were like thinking of themselves as editors because they were in the program and they were on the computer, you know. And no matter what platform you use, I mean, I started out on a moviola, so it doesn't matter what platform you're using to edit with. It's like learning how to edit and why you edit it is between your ears. In other words, your brain. And um, I would ask the kids, they say, okay, so tell me what the sexiest part of your body is. And they're all like, why is this woman asking us this question, yeah. you know? And I said, it's your brain, it's your mind. And 
that's what, um, you know, you need to question why, why you're putting in a sound. Are you putting in a sound just to uh, make it look like you know what you're doing or you're going to feature your, your great sound effects? No, it has to be for what the story is telling. And that's what I learned from my mom. My mom was not a technician in any sense of the word. And um, it was amazing that she could use a moviola because it had a forward and backward pedal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what she brought to the table was her sense of storytelling through sound, using sound to tell the story. So um, that's what I gleaned from working with her. So I think when, when, um, when I found that I could, because I was coming from a story point, a storytelling point of view as well, I found that her way of using sound was a creative outlet for me to also tell a story through sound. I mean, a lot of our work really in film is cleaning up production sound, which is a, a kind of a tedious, um, you know, people say, oh, can I come watch you sound edit? It's like, yeah, if you want to watch paint dry, <laughs> you know, because it's kind of akin to that unless, you know, but I get really excited sometimes when I'm cutting a sequence and I figure out a solution to a problem because that's what I really love about sound editing is that it's problem solving from the get-go. Like, how do I how do I make this sound fuller? How do I take out these clicks and pops? How do I uh, overlap these backgrounds? How do I add a certain sound effect layer that will increase people's believability in the story, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, with that in mind, you talked about, like, how the brain is the most important element of what we do it doesn't matter if it's if it's uh sound editing picture editing color visual effects sweeping the floor sweeping the floor mm-hmm. yeah don't look at my floor okay it's, it's, <laughs> it's cleaner than mine okay. i promise you um with that in mind how what what would you suggest to new filmmakers who are trying to figure out how to tell and cut more impactful stories both on sound and picture i mean you your expertise is a little bit deeper on sound, but what advice can we glean from you on how to do these things? Hmm. Practice, practice, practice. You know, work on any project that comes your way. Like uh, if you're in a film school, contact the director's program or the producer's program and say, hey, I'm a sound person and I want to edit on your film. And you know, you have to pay your dues. You have to um, go and do it for free. You know, you have to do a lot of projects for free because that's how you get good at it. And you're interfacing with people. And most of those, most of those films have the worst sound problems that you'll ever encounter. I've found, um, low budget films are the worst for, you know, but they're the best because you have so many problems to solve and how can you make it better with sound? So I always tell people, you know, think about the story, get the script ahead of time, envision, you know, what environment does this take place? Um, I mean, certainly a, a sci-fi or something like that doesn't have real environments that you can go and record because they don't exist in real life. So you're creating layers. And, and the key to layering is having everything as separate as possible because then you can add things and control the, the volumes and the levels and the placement of the speakers, you know. So if you get everything as separately as possible, not married together, then you have a way of, of creating um, depth, you know, and, and texture with the sounds. Like, um, for example, if you have a scene that takes place outdoors, if you just lay in a bunch of birds, then the audience's ear is going to kind of disappear that because it's a constant sound. It's like, why do people sleep with fans on or white noise? Because it cancels out things and you get used to it at a certain level. So if you have a, a scene that's outside and you you may have a layer of birds and wind, but if you place a bird every now and then in kind of strategic places, suddenly, you know, the audience is aware that they're outside, that there's full of birds, and it's not it's not something that's too much to draw your attention from the dialogue, which is the main point of most you know, most films is dialogue, you know. Absolutely. And it's I'm just fascinated by just, as a picture guy and a guy that works a lot with, I mean, I, I nerd out on documentary filmmaking. I think it, it's one, it's, it's really hard, especially in editorial. It's, it's less is more in documentaries, but you, you don't have, you don't have any control over what people say and when they say it. Well, 
it's interesting because like I'm I'm working on a uh, on a personal project and I'm like trying to think about how I'm going to do the sound, but it's it's I think that these are all unique challenges about how we how we go about these things, and it's always exciting to learn from others about how we can do our jobs better as post-production professionals because this is a this is a hard business to be in like it's it's pretty cool when it's on tv what people don't see is the years Mm -hmm. at times years to make a project be that in your experience with um with pirates of the caribbean speed or return of the jedi i can't imagine the amount of time or energy that Mm -hmm. went into those projects yeah, and you know when you have a sea of people working on very specific areas of that film, I mean it's it's really um, determined by the budget. You know, if you have a big budget movie, they can afford to hire ten ADR people or you know twenty editors or something. When when it was back on film, we had to do that. Now digital is a little less a uh, little less people, but all the Lucas films they get much more time to do their projects than we do here in Hollywood. You know, they, they'll be on a Star Wars movie for a couple years, you know, and we'll get like six weeks to, okay, do this project in six weeks. So there's a lot of variables. But I think I think going back to your other question about how to get, how to break in, you just keep doing projects, you know. Um, and you can even strip, you know, some famous film, just strip it off the YouTube or something and um, put your own sound in, you know, add your own sound to, to a project. I think that's a really valuable experience. And then listen to what the professionals, quote unquote, you know, have put in there and see if it works for you. Of course, they have the advantage of, you know, multi-speaker setup and, you know, you've got your stereo or whatever. Yeah, I mean. But it's really what, it's really a balance. Um, It's really a balance of dialogue. I mean, documentaries are a different animal because people accept more rough sound because it's real, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. (laughs) Well, it's. It's also interesting because it's like, I, I, I didn't go to film school. I studied broadcast. I was, I could have gone. Hence your setup here. Yeah, this is very low budget. <laughs> and we're looking at a Zoom and a, me holding a Sennheiser microphone. I, I studied broadcast. I didn't go to a film school where we were ta- taught how to use I didn't go res. to film school either. They didn't have, they don't really have film schools for but, learning and, this. I think what's interesting though is like, with film school, it's like, oh yeah, you think you're privileged to like go to a nice film school, be that UCLA, USC, NYU, AFI. It's like, no, go do the work now. Mm-hmm. Like, get out there, make right. something, and constantly be trying to reiterate things. So it's well, the the advantage that I see of film schools, and I, and I've taught in all of those <laughs> that you mentioned almost, um, is that you get you get a community of people who are like-minded, who are doing projects. And if so-and-so wants to be a director and you're their sound person, if they go on to be a director, they might drag you along with them like like Spielberg did with um, Richard Anderson, who cut, who did the first um, Indiana Jones and stuff. You know, and so you get, you because, you, you know, this is a, bil- a, a this is a, um, what's the word? This is a, uh, a, it's not a company. Collaborative. Yeah, I mean, film is a community Communal. It's very, yeah, very communal and, wait, that's not the word, wait. um, Hmm, I can't think of it right now. It's, it's, uh, nobody does it by themselves and uh, you need, you need the influence of other people to help you. And it's, um, it's a business of relationships. Just like when somebody says, whoa, how'd you get this movie made? Oh, I met a guy and he had some money and we just, you know. And I think intention is the biggest um, creative input you could have. When you when you intend something, you're putting that out into the universe that you want something back for yourself. You're intending to direct, write, produce, whatever, do sound editing. And I think when people learn all the different phases of filmmaking, then you have a real understanding because I've worked for directors who had no idea what I was doing and could care less. And that was really sad. But I've, I've also worked for directors like Mark Rydell who really appreciates everybody's craft and gives them the time to do it and and the wherewithal to do it right. I, I don't want to throw any directors that you may have relationships uh, under the bus, but... Um, <laughs> I do want to be really respectful of that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
are there examples that you might be able to tell us about? You mean good ones or bad ones? <laughs> Both. Um, sure. Uh, I worked on a, a film with a pretty well-known director and um, who, when I was, I was supervising the ADR and he challenged me on every single line I programmed. And I'm pretty judicious about programming. Like I, because I edit di production dialogue, I know what can be fixed and what can't be fixed. And I really only put down the lines that truly can't be fixed and that could be helped by doing ADR. I mean, he would pick up the sheet and like yell in my face, like, why are we looping this? You know, in front of the actor that's right there on the stage and very disrespectful. And it's not like I get paid for every loop line that I've programmed or that gets looped. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I said to him, almost in tears, I said, I'm here to protect your movie. I'm here to help your movie sound the best it can sound. And in my opinion of, you know, 30 years of experience, this is a line that could be helped with using ADR. I mean, it, it took longer to explain anything than it would have been for the actor to just loop the line, which was not a very crucial line at all, but it had a noise married to it that, you know, when we got to the dub stage, the mixer told, you know, turned around and he goes, why didn't you loop this? And of course I couldn't stand up and say, well, the director didn't want to, you know, mm -hmm. because then that isn't good. So there are those things. And, you know, the blessing about working on films is in a couple months, you'll be on to another movie unless you're working for Lucasfilm and <laughs> you get more time. So, you know, in that sense, it's like, okay, I can bear this for a few months and I'll just never work for this director again. He probably wouldn't want to work with me either. And I'm really easy to get along with. So, you know, for him to, and he, I found out he did that with everybody on the crew, the DP, the production sound mixer, everybody had this encounter with him and especially women. Cause he really didn't like women. <laughs> so. to the to each their own I don't necessarily agree with that director um, but on the flip side of that there are those directors and filmmakers who truly are a joy to work for mm -hmm. I mean, do, you, do you have examples of those people that you've worked with in your career most of them have been that because you know they know that we're all in in you know working on the film to make it the best it can be and that hopefully you're hired for your your talents and your creative input i mean i've, I've worked for directors who just said um just just sit there and tell me if the thing is in sync and can you work with it? i don't want your your input and it's like okay um that's too bad but okay and then on the other hand the directors will sometimes leave me in charge of uh, directing the group adr session on a film and I get to do that all by myself. I mean, they come in at like Wes Craven. He was wonderful to work with. I mean, what a what a, a gentleman. I mean, here he makes these like really creepy movies, but he's he's such a professional, and and I, I miss him terribly, you know. But I worked on four films with him, and he just knows his stuff, and he lets people do their job. And you know, if he has some input, he'll offer it in a very collaborative way. What was one of the biggest things you learned from? Uh... Wes Craven. <laughs> um, hmm. That probably probably that less is more, you know. I mean, even in his in his movies that have a lot of sound opportunities, he tends to want to feature the dialogue, and um, you know, less sound effects makes it scarier, you know. Even though we think of the opposite way that more sound effects would make it scary, but it's like. It's like that collective breath when something's about to happen and all the sound just kind of drops away. Like the music stops, the sound stops, and the whole audience is like, what's going to happen to her, you know, kind of thing. Well, it's interesting because, like, we've seen the same things with, uh, with uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies. You only see that much of the frame. You don't mm. see everything else that's going around in the picture. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what makes horror and thriller movies so terrifying you don't know what mm -hmm. they're seeing and you don't know what's right around that little corner there mm-hmm right right um which you can you can enhance that with sound because sound goes beyond the the one image you're looking at all the time because you're surrounded by different sounds what's an example of that um well from um scream 
four was a screen four uh so ghost faced right mm -hmm. you know ghost face he has a very distinctive voice right um and the the actor who played him came in to do some adr and i took one look at him and i went really that's ghost face you know um and and wes said this is why i never let the actor see him on the set like he was always off hiding somewhere and he would do his lines because he's he's this kind of round jovial guy who says hi i'm i can't remember his name right now um hi i'm you know so and so and then he gets up to the microphone and he goes i'm gonna slit your throat you know and it's like whoa he's so scary but when you see him you're not scared of him so wes never let the actors see him ever that's 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 interesting <laughs> yeah so um so that was uh, that. That was an interesting thing to learn, and just you know, I mean, Mark Rydell is one of my favorite directors that I worked with. Richard Brooks, uh, Robert Redford on Ordinary People, um, and and even Richard Kelly, who was on Donnie, who directed Donnie Darko, and he was you know a lot younger than me, mm -hmm. and he said, "Look, I I I I admit to you that I don't know a whole lot about sound, but I'm I'm willing to learn." And I thought that is just so classy as opposed to somebody coming in going, well, you know, I'm this young kid, hot new thing. I'm going to, I'm just, I know everything, you know. I, I saw Donnie Darko when I was in high school and. Way to make me feel old, Richard. <laughs> I apologize. No, it's, just, it's, <laughs> I it's the reality. It's okay. No, no, what was cool about it though is it's like, I watched it with my brother and we had no idea what we watched the first time. We had to watch it. Yeah. It's a very second mysterious. It, yeah. What I loved about it though was the 80s soundtrack to it and how it was just classic nostalgic <laughs> 80s movie in 2001 mm. it was just it was just a really fun no i think i saw it when i was in college 2008 That's when, was, when was donnie darko i, thought, I have my computer oh. open right now um donnie darko 2001 mm. and i saw it a few years later mm -hmm. after it was starting to permeate in the pop culture universe that we all yeah. live in. So what was what was it like working on Donnie Darko and what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced that younger filmmakers can take away from and learn from? Um well, you know, sound is a very subjective element of the process. I mean picture wise you know, what you see is what you get. Sound is very subjective. And if you're working for a, a director, it's like, uh, you know, you don't know what to ask when you don't know what to ask. You know, it's, um, so, you know, somebody who, who hasn't had a lot of experience, um, you know, with the sound process, you know, some of them, they just go away and they come back on the mix stage and they say, yeah, I like that. Or no, I don't like that. Um, and Richard, I found was very, uh, involved with the process and we would play things for him and we would play things for him. Sorry, there's going to be little doggy footsteps kind of walking around <laughs> here. It, I'll use it for ADR later. Okay. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the process was different for him, you know, and, and for most people, I mean, there's big top name directors who still have a problem sitting on the mix stage listening to the mixer uh, pre-dub production dialogue because it's a boring process. And then the guy's trying to mix, it's usually a guy, there are some women mixers out there, but um, you know he's trying to mix while all the producer, film editor, director, their assistants are behind him on a you know on the desk talking on the phone, doing all this stuff, you know. And I always think there should be little red lights on the um, mixer's chair that says, you know, recording, recording, so that they could be quiet because here they're trying to mix this person's movie, you know, in a, in a, with all this noise around. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's a process. Wait, I got off track there. Well, you were talking about yeah. learning from Richard in terms of, oh, yeah. of just working with him as a director. Yeah, I mean, he was just very accommodating and he trusted us. You know, he said, you guys are the professionals. You know what you're doing. You know, please tell me when I'm supposed to listen because it's a process, you know. Is that, is that really loud on there? It's, 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 it is, but it's go, fine. Go lie down, puppies. Go on. <laughs> go lie down. 
they usually like to just be wherever I am. No, that's fine. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, I remember working um, for Leslie Linka Gladder, who now is the director and executive producer of Homeland. She does a lot of... Oh, really? Yeah, she's really great. And I had done her film called The Proposition with Kenneth Branagh and uh, Madeline Stowe. And um, I remember we were we were trying to listen to a tone on the on the dub stage that the mixer was trying to dial out you know like a a room you know a hum or some kind of electronic you know sound that he was trying to and and he was going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and finally she got up and she said you know what I know you're doing something that's going to make my movie sound better but it's driving me crazy so I'm just going to go step out and somebody come get me when it's time for me to come back in and listen as opposed to some other director who, who will stand up and yell like, I don't know what the hell you people are doing. It's driving me crazy. Just stop it. I don't, I don't hear whatever you're hearing, you know, which is a clue that, okay, that's why we're the professionals and you're, you're the director. You don't have to listen to all of these mm-hmm. things, but it's there on a subconscious level and it will disturb audiences. Trust us on this, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I've, I, a lot of directors have said, oh, um, I, I don't I don't hear that because we all have selective hearing, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you're in a, in a bar talking to somebody you're interested in, you're going to, you know, subjectively remove all that background noise and just concentrate on what that person's saying because that's who you want to talk to. We it, have to manipulate that in a movie to give you that experience as an audience. It's interesting that you, like, talk about all those things because... Um... I think it was the Denzel Wa- Denzel Washington movie Flight. I'm just using mm. this as an example. They w- they would take this like pitch sound like any time that there was increased emotional involvement by Denzel, they would use this like sound, this like winding up sound that was mm. from an airplane, just like in music or no, it was a, oh. it was a sound effect. Wow, that they were constantly using. So I find it really interesting hearing how. Um, these little details, these minute details that some people may not hear and others might affect the overall... Um, they may not hear them, but they feel them. It's like a subconscious thing that sound does, you know? Like, think uh, when I worked on um, the Seagal movie. Um, <laughs> these names are escaping me now. That's a donkey, by the way. Brain in the background. That will be uh, also (laughs) an ADR track at some point. Um, uh, Under Siege. Sorry, Under Siege. And uh, when I first saw the cut, I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. Here's a movie that these guys are on the ship and they're just running all around and it really sounds stupid because it doesn't have all the sound in it to make it seem real. So when I did the, I think I supervised the Foley on that. And when I went to the Foley stage, I was with this very well-known... A uh, Foley artist named John Rush, who now has a his own soundstage up at Lucasfilm, and that they built for him. I mean, he's terrific because he follows the story. A lot of a lot of you know people who go into editing are very technical, and you have to always remember what it is you're doing there. You're there to serve the story. You're not there to make the story serve you. So we'd come up with an idea of of every time people would walk on the ship we'd have this kind of metallic ring off, which we did by putting a metal, uh, kind of an aluminum uh, trim bin. We used to hang actual film on. This trim bin near the microphone so that when they they walked on cement, they'd have this kind of slight metallic bounce off this aluminum bin. Now, if you go to see the movie, you're gonna say, oh yes, I hear what she's talking about. No, because I mean, a ship, we could be on a ship right now, you know, I mean, we'd be moving back and forth a little bit, but you know, I'm saying like the surfaces don't imply you're on a big ship because a big ship is just cement and, you know, wood and whatever ships are made out of, but they don't sound that different than what you're in a room, right? Like Mm -hmm. carpet and cement. And so we figured with that little slight metallic thing, it would give the subconscious feeling that we're on a ship. And so those kind of things, like you would never, you'd never pick them out. You know, they're, they're just very subtle. It's like what DPs do with color and depth of field and focus and light. You know, we do that with sound layers, you know. I'm trying to like <laughs> wrap my head around it because uh. like as a, as a picture guy, I'm like, 
these aren't things I normally think about. I'm trying to think about how I cut something down tighter and tighter and tighter and use my different shots. But it, I think what's interesting, though, with that is, in many ways, editors are the first guys to do the temp sound in some cases. Just Definitely. To, Definitely. So, and, and you need that. I mean, back in the in the 80s, you know, film editors worked, you know, with one track. You had to cut everything pretty much on one track because that's what you had to work with. And if you um, if you had more than one track, that's why I could show that example from Speed because that was just one production track cut together, cut to cut to cut to cut. There wasn't anything overlapping. There weren't extra sound effects. There was, wasn't anything. And once you, you know what they why we even started doing temp dubs was because when the picture editor oh do you want me to that, unplug it fine. now that's fine um it's people are just gonna have to deal with it it's <laughs> deal a with the natural sounds it's a of life yes ladies and yes gentlemen. my arrowhead water bottle came on it is pretty loud though yeah okay filter it out isotope but anyway so picture editors would you know turn over a temp dub mix to us and we'd add temporary sound effects music um you know because the studio executives couldn't stand hearing just a raw production track and it, and it, and really it's kind of boring if you watch a movie with just production sound it's kind of boring and especially nowadays we're also used to hearing so much sound in a movie well what was interesting when you showed that example from Speed was it's it's funny because like people are always thinking about other like it seems like sound is a low priority in some <laughs> and, and I'm not mm -hmm. trying to be disrespectful. No, it it's, is. It's, it is. It seems like people are so much more concerned about the camera, the edit, the actors and all these things and then it's like and eh, we'll get to sound when we get to sound. But what was fascinating to me when watching that scene, from, that scene from Speed was how how much the sound really influenced the entire scene. Because without those sound effects, it felt longer. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it'll feel interminable if you <laughs> if you if you listen to a sequence without sound. That's why I, I it's a lot of times to my classes I'll show the first um, ten minutes of the river without any sound at all. And basically it was shot MOS, and so all the sounds were added because of the rain the rain build, building up and building up and all this. And uh, when I ask them afterwards, I don't tell them how long it is, I just show them the sequence. I say, how long did that feel? And they say, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I mean, that's, and I said it was 10. And they're shocked. And then I show it again with all the sound. So, you know, sound occupies your brain because you're constantly trying to put sound, even in a silent movie, you want to try to put sound to it, even if it's the air conditioning or it's the traffic outside. It's like we have to hear, we have to hear what this environment is like. So I think it's those choices, and really, sound editing is all about um, making the best choices. Just like in picture editing, you know, you have to keep rearranging shots, and you know, because it's it's it creates a certain tempo and a rhythm. Um, the great uh, Dee Dee Allen, who cut, you know, Dog Day Afternoon and many, many movies, right? Mm -hmm. um, she edited uh, sound first, and then she cut the picture to it. Interesting. Beca and she did that because of the rhythm of sound. And if you, you as a picture editor know, I mean, actors have a certain timing when they're acting that they usually carry through from shot to shot. And, and you probably carry that timing also, unless you're really trying to shorten space in between. But. Well, what's interesting is like how frames, frames yes. can make a huge difference. Like mm -hmm. adding eight frames mm -hmm. is a long time or shortening yeah. it down to like finding it right when they start talking. Right. Like, I was working on something last night. I was cutting down an interview I did with a buddy of mine just... It was a test interview that I did for this documentary I'm trying to put together. And I think what's interesting is just like hearing about these challenges and just like how we deal with sound and how we cut things tighter. And going to back to what I was saying was uh, I let the, I had like two seconds at the end after he stopped talking. And I was like, that felt like forever. But these little decisions, uh -huh. regardless, is, regardless of it, it's sound, picture, cinematography make a huge difference in terms of how people perceive a finished product that they might see mm -hmm. on Netflix, in the theaters, right. on, on right. broadcast television, on their phones. 
these little details have a huge impact on all these things. Right. I, I showed a, a, a longtime picture editor my cut of Shelby's Vacation, which I just directed and edited. And um, he, he said, you know, you always want to try to end on people's eyes, like keep people's eyes on, on, on each other. And he says, you have one cut where the character is looking at the other character, but then she looks down for like three frames. And I went back to the cut and sure enough, it was like three frames that I took off where she looked down. And I, now I end on her looking, you know, at the other character. And those kind of things make such a difference. And I think also you have to um, give some films a little breathing room because there will be music cues. I know some people don't like to edit with temp music because then you get temp love and mm -hmm. you end up, you know, loving that music. So I, I fall prey to that as well. Even with all my experiences, like I love my temp music and I can't wait to hear what my composer is doing with it because I know it's going to be completely different. And I have to kind of flush out my ears and, you know, let myself enjoy what she's bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. How long have you been trying to do, or how long have you been working as a director and what made you go in a different path rather than just continuing down sound editing. What drew you to ultimately directing? Um, well, I, I applied to and got accepted into the AFI's Directing Workshop for Women back in 1988, 89, something like that, um, where they gave, you know, people who were working in the industry in other capacities um, other than directing, you know, a chance to direct a short film. And I got into that and I made a short film. And I, I always had thought of myself as a director. And one of the things that um, my mom taught me and as well as many other people in the business is that no matter what part of the film process you're in, think of yourself as a filmmaker. Don't think of yourself as a technician or a recording engineer or a whatever, you know, think of yourself as a filmmaker. And, um, so I always thought of myself as a, as a writer-director, and I've always been writing stories and wanting to do that. And I thought, you know, getting into the workshop, the Directing Workshop for Women, which is a great program, by the way, still going strong. Um, and now they, now they even are giving women who come through that program an actual job directing. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So for all you ladies out there that want to become directors in a male-dominated <laughs> business... <laughs> Well, sound editing is a pretty male-dominated business, too, but um, and I've come across that kind of prejudice from a very famous uh, composer who has uh, died in the last couple of years. Um, you could figure out his name by that information. Anyway, he did not think women could be sound editors, especially effects editors, and he kind of tried to sabotage our efforts in that regard, myself and another sound supervisor on a couple films. Um, you know, and it's like, why? My gender should have nothing to do with what kind of sound design I can do. Oh, absolutely not. But, you know, I mean, people used to think that with my mom. I remember she went in to get a, a I mean, she told me this story that she went in for a submarine picture, right? And the producer said, well, you're a woman. What do you know about submarines? You know, the sound of submarines and all this. And there was some guy in the in the waiting room who overheard, and he goes, uh, I'm a guy. I don't know anything about submarines, you know, but we're editors. This is what we do, you know? So it should have nothing to do with gender, but, and also I, I, I tried for many years after I got into the director workshop for women to keep doing my own projects. And I was a finalist in the Chanticleer program, which was uh, Janice Sue Memel and Jonathan Sanger had done this company of giving people $60,000 to make a 30 minute short film shot on 35 millimeter, because that's how much they cost. So, you know, it was very hard to practice the craft of directing because it was so darn expensive. I mean, now we can make movies on our iPhones. We can, you know, it's very easy for people to just go out and practice the craft of directing for very little money. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get good at it. But you also want to study what went before you. Like, don't keep reinventing the, the wheel, so to speak. You know, learn, learn how to set up a project for success as opposed to turning it over to some sound editor who goes, well, did you shoot with separate mics? I mean, what am I listening to in your OMF? Is it, did you merge the good sound with the camera sound? Is it just camera sound? I need to know what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the biggest challenges that, you, or how has directing impacted how you now <laughs> work with sound? Because working with, as a director is a completely different mm -hmm 
thought process. You're worried a lot. You're worried about a thirty thousand foot level of everything in right. the entire picture mm-hmm. versus just one little detail being sound. How has directing really impacted your work as a sound editor? Well, funny enough that you should ask that question because um, a lot of times when I'm directing, I completely forget about the sound, as most directors do because there's so many things to deal with on the set. You know, there's how to set it up, how to light it, whatever. So I make sure that I hire a good production mixer who has my back. That's how I do it. And I even had my, my mixer this time who was one of my former students who went off into production mixing, and he's very successful at that. He said, you know, when I was taking classes from you, I remember you told me that you're supposed to say, and action, to give the sound editor some space to use for fill, to fill little clicks and pops. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I, that was me. I did say I did say that, which I learned from Mark Rydell. Um, and the same thing with and cut, you know, you say, I mean, you don't say and cut because that doesn't do it. You want and cut. So you have that little bit of room tone that's available from each scene as opposed to trying to get a set full of 30 people to hold still for 30 seconds to get room tone, mm-hmm. which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever, you know, people do as, as a process. And it's like, no, you don't need to do that. Just do it when, when the film is rolling because we're not... You know, we're not processing film anymore. It's not going to cost anybody any more money to hear and with a little space and then action. It's interesting because it's like I made the leap from Seattle. I was working in a lot. I was working up there as a commercial PA. And at the end of every scene, all right, guys, hold, hold, the, room, room hold the work. We're going to shoot for room tone. Hold the work. And yeah, they we stand that around for yeah. 30 seconds it's and it's like ridiculous and then i had cut all right continue guys and i mean some production mixers think that that's what you're supposed to do and so they make people do it but it's it's really unproductive and um you know if if there's pauses within this because everybody holds still when the director says and action everybody holds still and we, we almost don't need much more than that few seconds to be able to make a a successful, you know, loop of room tone. And it will match every single take. Whereas room tone at the end of a a take, you don't know if they're going to use five Apple take two, or they might do five Apple take five, you know, and if you, you're not going to do room tone at that, at 30 seconds of people holding still is a long, long time of dead space, you know, where nothing's happening and people are frustrated. You know, it just doesn't work. It's not practical. So, when I'm directing, I'm, I'm um, you know, I just make sure that my production mixer has my back. And, um, I mean, ideally, he or she should be trying to get uh, wild tracks of ambiences, let's say, birds and wind and things that are indigenous to where you're shooting or if there's equipment. But, you know, people plainly just don't have the time, especially on low-budget productions, because... You know, you're moving so fast and you don't have time for the luxuries of a, a long form shoot where you have the budget to have people doing just one thing. Like my my poor little production designers was were also doing the set decorating and they were doing the art. You know, I mean, everybody wears many hats on a low budget production. I, it's interesting that you say like many hats because I think that's the film industry and <laughs> being a creative yeah. by today's stretch of the imagination. I think yeah. I think a lot of filmmakers are not no longer just directors. They're editors, they're sound editors, mm-hmm. or if they're if one's a cinematographer, they're they may right. be ACing on projects or working as a steady cam operator. Right. I think that's I think that's true of a lot of filmmaking in this mm-hmm. day and age. Yeah, you have to well plus with the advent of, you know, cheaper cameras to shoot with, you know, you get to practice all those different areas and, you know, hopefully get good at them. But um, that's why I encourage people to, um, you know, uh, just get their practice in with uh, making short films. And um, I have this great handout. I don't know if they mailed it to you called an open letter from your sound department. I I don't think I... I Oh, okay. I'll have to ask them. I think there was a... uh, I might have taken a picture of it and it's on my phone somewhere. Oh, okay. Because it's a great document of you know, what you can do ahead of time to make sure your production is good. Because 
you know, nobody thinks about it on the time that you're shooting because there's so many other things going on. But if you have somebody conscious of where's the generator going to be or unplug noisy machines when you're shooting something, I mean, and remember to plug them back in. I was, I was doing a shoot where we had unplugged the refrigerator at this office building and we forgot to plug it in oh, and they no. came in on Monday and like all their food was spoiled and there was a puddle of water on the floor and you know so they say oh you put put your keys in the refrigerator and that'll remind you to turn it back on again that's funny or wear booties you know if your feet aren't going to be in the shot don't don't wear hard soled shoes you know because things are always easier to add than to take away so what are some of those things that were on that open letter to <laughs> the sound from to me from the sound department, what are... Well, um, you know, knowing where the generator is placed is a, is a big one. Um, just listening to the environment is a really, really big one. Wearing booties on your feet. Um, remember, like, a steady cam operator is going to be walking along with your actors. So they need to not have their feet be heard too much. because, And they try to walk and step with them so there's not these multiple footsteps. Um, what else was on there? It's like... I don't know, 12 pages of, of really cool hints on things. Uh, overlapping is a big one. Like when you're doing your coverage, you don't want the other actor to overlap on your on the actor who's on camera because that sound gets married together and you can't use it. The whole point of having coverage, you know, medium shot, close up, whatever, is to not overlap. We can artificially overlap it by filming the other side and have that, that actor, you know, but act, especially young, and young actors, I found they kind of mumble a lot, like, uh, especially girls, <laughs> I don't know why, but they, you know, they have that kind of mumbly way of talking, they don't know how to project uh, properly, and, um, you know, just getting a good signal-to-noise ratio, and most people, they don't, they, and don't ever say, we're waiting on sound, don't ever say that, it's so insulting. I mean, nobody ever says, oh, we're waiting on picture when somebody takes four hours to light something because that's an important thing. That's the picture. And, you know, a sound should get the same consideration because you're going to be stuck with it the rest of the movie. And yet it's, it's this forgotten little underling there, you know, that's off in the corner somewhere and some guy's, you know, saying, oh, we need to get that again. There was an airplane over. And they're like, oh, come on, you know. We'll fix it in post. Yeah. Well, this is my, my whole um, reason that I like to teach still is I want to get, get to the people to fix it while you're record, you know, while you're on the set. Fix it on the set, not fix it in post. And what are other ways that we can fix it on set? Because, like, I, I, study, I also studied art direction and... Uh, for advertising, that is. So I was surrounded by copywriters and agency art directors, but we were required to take a video course because these kids who were studying to be art directors at some of the biggest agencies in the world had no idea of how to tell a story visually. Oh, wow. And the term, even in, in advertising, of like, fix, oh, we'll just fix it in post. Well, that's like saying shit, you're just going to yeah. deal with this shit later, later because it's going to roll downhill. So, and it's much more expensive to fix it later, believe me. I mean, um, just trust me on that. <laughs> so what, I don't want to sound like Trump when I say that, but, you know, trust me, it's it's really expensive to, you know, fix things later when you could have fixed them before they happened. Huge mistakes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's enough of that. I've, I've done too many Trump impersonations or jokes at his expense on this podcast. Um, what are a few examples of things that practically that we can do without even thinking about like what are some um, of those other well, things that we can be doing something as simple as as costume selection you know um they say silk is your enemy cotton is your friend i mean if you've ever tried to put a lav on somebody wearing silk uh that creates a lot of problems um booms are always preferable to lavs and the reason is even though lavs are kind of safety lavs go out and if you're only relying on lavs and they go out or they run out of battery or they have some kind of interference, you're screwed. And then you have to bring the actors back in to ADR them. And then somebody has to edit the ADR and all that takes time. You know, listen to your environment that you're shooting in. You know, go there ahead of time. Don't just, you know, pick the location based on looks. Go there and just sit there and listen to it. You know, is it on a flight path at an, near an airport? Are there, is there lots of traffic going on, you know? 
are these conversations from your experience taking place with filmmakers on the tech scout? Um, no, because they don't think of those things. They don't think of, of just listening to an environment. I mean, look at ordinary people was, you know, best picture of the year, right? Uh, they chose an aluminum warehouse near an airport to shoot the psychiatrist scenes um, because it worked and it, you know, maybe it was budget, you know, budget problems or who knows why, but it created all kinds of problems for us later editorially because the aluminum would heat up, it would pop and crack, um, you know, it was noisy because there was airplanes going on all the time and in a, in a dialogue driven film like that, you have no place to hide. If you're on a big, you know, effects movie with, you know, cars blowing up and explosions and car chases or whatever, you know, those kind of sound problems don't matter. But when you're just have two people in a room talking and you're hearing, you know, pops and clicks and crackles and airplanes, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't give you that really nice feeling of what that scene is supposed to portray. So there's that. Um what else? Uh, yeah, just costumes. I mean, Barbara Streisand in Prince of Tides wore a leather skirt sitting on a leather couch. Well, anybody who's moved on a leather couch wearing leather will know that, you know, you don't want Barbara Streisand to sound like she's farting every time she moves in the chair. <laughs> and yet those are her cho their choices because they looked good. So it's really, that's why you have different department heads who specialize in their own area and you confer with people because, you know, you might say, I really want, when I was doing my AFI film, I, it was about a, a woman, modern day woman who fantasizes being a cowboy in the old west to solve her problems in her office of her coworkers trying to steal her ideas and stuff. But anyway, so I wanted her to be wearing like this really cool leather vest, you know, in the, in the old west sequences with the fringe on the, you know. And she put it on, she brought a thing over, and I said, um, just move a little bit for me. And she went, all right, all right, all right. So every time she moved, the whole thing would make this horrible leather sound. And I went, no, we can't, we can't use that. It's just not, you know, it looks good, but it's gonna sound horrible. And you always wanna just protect the sound because that's where your story comes from. And people who get, you as an editor know that the more you play things over and over and over, that's the way they become you know, you become accustomed to that, kind of like listening to your own, you know, your favorite, you know, group, and then you go hear them live in concert, and you get a little miffed because they're not doing the phrasing the same way, or the notes sound a little different because it's a live performance, and you're hearing it, you know, fresh for the first time that way, as opposed to the the record you've been listening to. I've all, going off that for a sec. I've always found that if a band can nail a live performance and it's better than the CD mm -hmm. or the recorded version, I'm sold. Like, I'll be, I'll be excited about that. Um, I'll be ex even more excited about them. Um, Sorry, I just have to uh, send. Okay, I'm all <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, you, you know, because sound is uh, kind of the last thing that happens before the film gets released, you know, we're at the brunt of everybody's problems and time constraints and all that. And mm -hmm. sometimes we get an input with the film editor about timing of things. Like in um, in Daylight, there's a sequence where um, Stallone is going down through these fans, and there's a there's a clock that's going that he's going around that um, you know ha has like a beep sound that they put to it. And if you look at the sequence with that in mind, with that timing. Um, we had to have the picture editor who was very accommodating and willing to do that for us, you know, add two frames here, two frames there to keep that rhythm up the right way. Otherwise, the rhythm would sound weird. And rhythm always outshines sync. Like if something is rhythmically okay, like Foley footsteps, and this happens a lot because the film editors are looking at a different type, type of timing than a sound editors. So we might, you might cut from a, a, a medium shot to a wide shot of somebody walking. Well, sometimes we get, oh, there's, they're walking on the right foot twice. So how do you accommodate Foley for that? You can't have them go that, 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 or change the, you know, the timing of that, 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 you know, you have to gradually increase it, which you can do by either adding a frame, a couple frames so that the person's walking right, left, right, left. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and some pictures don't notice it at all because they have a different sense of timing. So the same with ADR, like you want something rhythmically to be correct versus perfect sync that's out of rhythm, you know? All right, so that's all we got for this episode of Render Time with Vicki Sampson. Big thanks to Vicki for coming on the show. And be sure to come back next week to hear my second part of the interview with Vicki, where she'll continue to unpack a ton of insightful knowledge about how to make it not just only as a sound person in the film industry, but a working professional in Hollywood. Anyways, also, if you enjoy the show, please leave a rating on iTunes. I would really appreciate it, and it would also get it out to more people, and it would be a resource that people could use as they are pursuing that Hollywood dream. Also, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handles Richard underscore Lutz. There you will find a ton of information about the projects I'm involved, render time, and various other things. Anyways, that's all the time I got for this episode of Render Time. And as always, create, share, and sustain the life that you want. Get out there and make some awesome work. Thanks, guys. See you next week.